Good evening, and we're so glad you're here at the Orchard for our Tuesday evening Bible study through the book of Revelation. And if you're watching online, wherever you may be in the United States, in Vanuatu, oh, me glad to must look along you back again. We are so happy to see you from Vanuatu. And if you're even watching from Ukraine, our prayers are with you. And if you are watching from Afghanistan, our prayers are with you as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can gather together here on a weekly basis here at the Orchard in Carbondale, Colorado, USA, to go through your word, your word which is universal, which applies to all people of the world, because your love is for all people of the world. We pray, Father, we would just rejoice and be glad that we are chosen by you, that our salvation is assured, that our eternal destiny is procured by the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and we will dwell with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you don't have the notes, you can contact uh, the church office, uh, the Orchard, uh, and here in Carbondale, Colorado, theorchardlife.com, office at theorchardlife.com, and uh, Lori will be sure and get those notes off to you. We left off in Revelation chapter 5 last week, and we left off in verse 2, where the angel asked, who is worthy to break the scroll and open it? You remember that the scroll was a long uh, sheet of papyrus, 15 feet long, written on both sides because it represented a legal document, a real estate document, if you will, and it's the title deed to planet Earth. And so in verse 2, the angel asked, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? And uh, notice he didn't ask who was willing. We mentioned last week that Alexander the Great was willing. He was willing to take the scroll, the title deed of planet Earth. Genghis Khan was willing, speaking of Afghanistan, to break the seals and take title deed to planet Earth. Charlemagne was willing. All three of these individuals had global visions in mind where they would rule the, rule the planet. Napoleon was willing. Adolf Hitler was willing. But the angel doesn't ask who was willing, but who was worthy. Who was worthy? So when no one comes forward to reclaim the earth's title deed on this 15-foot long scroll of papyrus known as the book of Revelation, tears begin to flow in verse 4. In verse four. And the Greek words we talked about last week, to weep bitterly means sobbing convulsively. John was sobbing. He was sobbing convulsively, just, just in utter anguish that there was no one that was worthy. He was overwhelmed with grief when he realized that the planet Earth would remain in Satan's grasp forever in verse 4. And although he was sobbing convulsively, those around him knew something he didn't. You remember we read in verse 5, one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. This refers back, we talked about, to Genesis 49, where Jacob calls his 12 uh, sons together to pronounce a blessing upon them and says uh, that power and authority would be his until the coming of the Messiah. He tells that to, uh, to, uh, to, to Judah. And uh, you remember that Jesus was born of the lineage of David. But because Jesus preceded uh, David by all eternity, he's the root of David as well as the heir to David's throne. We discussed that, discussed that last week in verse 5. And because... Jesus is from David's family line. He fulfills the promise of the Messiah as given in Genesis 49. So the angel tells John, don't weep because this won't go on forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. And so John turns around. We discussed this last week in verse 6. And he sees a lamb that looked as though it had been slaughtered, but now was standing between the throne, the four living beings, and among the 24 elders. 
The Greek word translated lamb, as you may recall, means a pet lamb, a, a, a lamb that's cherished, uh, that's loved, uh, a special lamb, not just a sheep. The lamb that John saw looked as though it had been slaughtered, this beloved pet lamb. And according to Isaiah 52, verse 4, his face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man describing the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only that Jesus' beard was plucked out, his back was beaten, his side was pierced, his wrists and his feet were nailed. Uh, It's not only the psychological and spiritual stress that Jesus, being 100% man, was going through as he hung there on that cross for six hours. But it preceded that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that caused the blood vessels of his face to burst. And, and, and Jesus experienced in ways that we'll never know until, until we see him. The Bible says in Isaiah 52 verse 14, his face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. That's what Jesus, our Lord, looked like. It's not only that Jesus' uh, beard was plucked out and his back was beaten and so forth and so on, but there's one more thing that terrorized our Lord more than anything else, and that was that he would drink from the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world. And if you have not seen or if you did not if you are not here and heard pastor daniel from the orchard preach on this if there's any one sermon that i could recommend that would be it the cup of god's wrath which far supersedes the physical anguish and pain that he experienced in the garden of gethsemane when he stood in the court and received those beatings even as he was hanging on the cross in the old testament lambs were sacrificed to atone for sins. The Lamb of God was the final sacrifice for all sins, past, present, and future. How do we know? The Bible tells us so in Isaiah 53, verse 7, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So the seven horns that we read about in this chapter, the question came up, and I want to answer that before we move on tonight, represents the perfect power. Uh, how do we know? Once again, set 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 11 and Zechariah chapter 1 tells us, and although our Lord is the sacrificial lamb, he's not weak. He was killed, but he now lives in power and strength. We read in verse 6. The seven eyes represent his perfect sight, and the Holy Spirit is represented in this as well. The Bible says that the 24 elders and four living beings held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The Bible says your prayers are stored in heaven. Uh, An angel appeared to him saying your prayer is heard uh, when Zacharias uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, Zacharias prayed, and and the angel appeared to him and said, Your prayer is heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. You can read about that story in Luke chapter 1. Zacharias hadn't prayed that prayer in decades. But God doesn't forget our prayers. And many of the blessings that we're experiencing in our life today are the answers to our prayers that we prayed long ago. So, mom or dad, if you've been praying for that son or daughter... For the last five or 10 or 15 years or even longer, or grandfather, grandmother, if you've been praying for that grandson or granddaughter for the last many years, keep praying. Keep praying. Those prayers are stored in heaven in these golden bowls. How full is your bowl? That's the question. Don't give up. So, who are the only people who can say you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it? For you were slaughtered and your blood has been ransomed, has ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language and people and nation. In verse 9, only the church. Those are the only people that qualify. Only the church. This means the church is in heaven 
in Revelation 5. Before the tribulation begins in Revelation 6. So the church in heaven, people from every nation, from every tribe, from every uh, background are praising God before his throne because Jesus has already paid the penalty for their sin. So right now, we're in the time when he is gathering people from around the world into his kingdom and making us priests. How do I know? The Bible tells us so. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own um, possession. So from our study in chapter 5, we know that the scroll had a total of seven seals. Chapter 6, we've gone over. It's a parallel to the Olivet Discourse. We've talked about that, uh, where Jesus taught about the end times on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. Matthew 24, Luke 21, you have a chart in your notes. Chapters 6 through 19 describe the seven-year period of the tribulation. And we already mentioned that there's more space allocated in the Bible to the tribulation than any subject except salvation and the promise of Christ's second coming. So salvation, number one, the promise of Christ's second coming, number two, and then the tribulation is number three of all subjects addressed in the Bible. It's mentioned over 49 times in the Old Testament, over 15 times in the New Testament. We know the tribulation will last exactly seven years from Daniel chapter 9. We mentioned that last week. It will be a holocaust of major proportions that's exceeding the atrocities that are being committed against people in Afghanistan and Ukraine even as we speak. Uh, it combines the wrath of God with the fury of Satan and the evil nature of man run wild. So the question is, why does God allow the tribulation? We discussed this, number one, to bring time to an end, Daniel chapter 9, to fulfill Israel's prophecies, number two, Ezekiel 37 and 38, to shake people from their false sense of security, uh, and then number four, to force people to choose Christ or the Antichrist, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The tribulation is the result of the rebellion of human since Adam and Eve and sin. And as each of the first four seals is opened, a rider on a horse uh, appears. And by their appearance, it's clear that these guys aren't looking for a game of polo, as we mentioned last week in closing. These riders have come, have come to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first rider on the white horse, which would normally be a symbol of victory, verse 2, uh, and he carries a bow, his crown was placed on his head, that we read about, is not Jesus. The Greek word translated crown here is Stephanos. We talked about that last week in verse 2. And uh, that's a temporary crown made of olive leaves. A diadem is a permanent crown, and the word diadem is used in this passage. Stephanos, a, a, a crown of olive leaves, only lasts a short time. A diadem is permanent. Now, uh, verse 2 says that the rider of this white horse rode out to win many battles and to gain the victory. So how will the rider of this white horse, carrying a bow, wearing a temporary crown of olive branches, gain victory? Well, he'll be a master of intrigue, a master of deception. Uh, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. The prophet Daniel. And we'll be getting to that. That event will happen later on in the Battle of Armageddon. 
So this is exactly what Jesus prophesied in John chapter 5, verse 43, when he said, For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you will gladly welcome them. And we see this happening even today. Um, the Antichrist will deceive unbelievers into thinking that it's, he's a wonderful man with all the answer, answers to all the problems of the world. The unbelievers on the earth will have little or no biblical knowledge, and so they'll buy into his lies. The Antichrist will be perceived as a good man, a smart man, a man of peace. He, he will be represented by the white horse, but his peace will be a false peace. The Antichrist will rise to power very quickly. Uh, he'll be turned loose with his evil schemes to do as he will. Uh, there'll be no restraining power of the Holy Spirit or help from God at any, of any kind because the Holy Spirit was removed along with the church when the rapture takes place and we meet our Lord in the air. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And when we as believers leave, then there is no more restraining power here on planet Earth. Now, it's a, it's a report, it's important to remember that Jesus, the Lamb, is the one breaking the seals in heaven in Revelation 5 5. Each of the four living creatures summons one of the horsemen as each seal is broken, and the Bible makes it clear that God is in control. God's in charge of even the, uh, the, the worst that, that's about to happen. So, here's where we ended last week. Who does the Antichrist bring with him? Verse 4, Revelation 6. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. This time, prophecy reveals him riding not a white horse, but a red horse. The red horse represents blood. The red horse following the white horse of the Antichrist is war. Very timely for what is happening in our world right now. The Antichrist will be given the power to conquer by killing people and by causing war and murder and confusion. And when Jesus was asked, what about the signs at the end of the age? What will they be? He said, and I quote, don't let anyone mislead you, Jesus said, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Now, the rider on the first horse based his success on peace, but it's only temporary. The rider on the second horse brings war. Anyone who believes that there are true political solutions to the world's problems is sadly mistaken. Politics, listen carefully. I said I'd talk about politics tonight. Here we go. Politics is always, always about gaining and maintaining power. I don't care if you're on the far left or the far right or somewhere in the middle. Politics is always about gaining and maintaining power. 
and power always brings about war. History bears this out. And war is always disguised to look acceptable, to look even patriotic. All you need to do is watch the news today. Watch the news that is permeating all the channels that are still on in Russia. This is a patriotic action we are taking against Ukraine to drive out Nazism. We are coming to rescue the people of Ukraine. And the national anthem plays. And you have probably read on your social media or other accounts where people in Russia by the millions are buying into this because that's all they hear. It is patriotic. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 1, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. Boy, that's headlines right out of today's paper, isn't it? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. If there's ever a message that would be appropriate for today, it's that message from James 4. Anyone or any church that looks to the government for solutions to our world's problems will always be disappointed. I guarantee it. Anyone or any church that looks to a politician for solutions to our world's problems will be disappointed. Jesus refused to be pulled into politics when people wanted to make him king. In John chapter 6 verse 15, you remember, when Peter raised his sword to wage a religious war, what the zealots were doing in his day, Jesus said, put it away. Put it away. That is not my way. Matthew 26, verse 52. So the rider of the black horse comes upon the scene. And he symbolizes, or this black horse symbolizes famine. Verse 5. Food shortages and starvation for everyone. Well, almost everyone around the world, except, except the wealthy. And that has been in the news the last few days. The wealthy. One of the wealthy owns the world's largest private yacht. And that yacht was just confiscated. You followed the news pertaining to Ukraine. The Antichrist, you see, he will need the assistance of the rich unbelievers to accomplish his goal of conquering the world. After all, that is the whole purpose. That is the goal. That is the reason for existence of the Antichrist. In addition, this prophecy reveals that he will be able to tip the scales, as we read about in this passage, in his favor. There will be an imbalance in nature, what we just read. A loaf of bread. The Bible says, I'm sorry, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. What is that referring to? Well, I'm glad you asked. That refers to a global, con a global economy that is so oppressive that masses of people around the world are going to exist just on mere rations, just barely enough calories to stay alive. A full day's wage will only buy a little bit of wheat or a little bit of barley. Inflation. All you need to do is just go south, young man, young woman. Go south to Venezuela, once one of the most prosperous nations in the West and now a nation in utter disarray, in financial ruin, 
And it can be summed up in one word, massive inflation. Inflation. You follow the news? So because the Antichrist system is based on the mark of the beast that we read about in verse 6, and we'll talk more about that later on, the olive oil and the wine, verse 6, represent luxury. The wealthy of the world, think of the oligarchs in Russia, the largest yacht in the world. The oligarchs, the wealthy of the world, they somehow will continue to get wealthier and wealthier in these times. Even in these times of war and famine, history bears this out. For example, do you remember Alfred Nobel? Remember Alfred? Alfred Nobel. Uh, maybe you remember his last name, Nobel. Nobel. Alfred Nobel of Peace Prize fame. You remember him? He made his fortune how? Guns. Well, more specifically, selling explosives. That's right. And when his father, who was also named Alfred, when he died, an obituary was printed in the paper, and the obituary had mistakenly referred, got, got the father and, and the son mixed up. They got, they, they got too, too confused. And so the obituary read, and I quote, he was a rich industrialist who made his fortune in war. Well, when Alfred, the son, read that, he was horrified. He couldn't sleep. He was depressed, thinking that he was making a personal fortune through war and that that would be his legacy. And so from that day on, he set aside a substantial sum of money to fund prizes for peace, for science, for medicine, and for literature. The Nobel Peace Prize. So the Bible says in Revelation verse 7 and 8, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Kind of an ugly horse. Robin and I have a favorite cowgirl here in the valley, Bonnie, and she has beautiful horses. None of her horses are pale green. But the Bible says this horse was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Now, it's just a little sidelight. It's interesting that green has always represented the Islamic faith. The symbol, you know, the, the crescent moon, the star, and so forth. The flag is green. But this pale green colored horse really not comes from that, but it comes from a Greek word from which we get our English word chloros. You may have heard of that. Chlorine comes from that word. Clorox, bleach, and other things. And we get the English word chlorophyll. You remember high school science? Chlorophyll. The Bible says that power will be given to the Antichrist to kill one-fourth of the world's population in the first 21 months of the tribulation. Verse 8. These will be people that will be killed whose hearts have been hardened against God to the point where they cannot change. Oh, they may have lovely personalities. They may be your best friend your closest friend, a role model, a good citizen, voting at every election, giving money to good causes. Oh, they believe in Jesus and the church is a good thing. But their heart, their soul has never bowed. They have never cried out, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I plead that you would come into my life. 
that you would be the Lord of my life and that my name would be written in the Lamb's book of life. I give my life, I give my soul to you, and you will know them by their fruit, by the love they have one for another, and that includes being active in a local church. If there is no fruit, they can be wonderful, wonderful people. They can be our closest friends, but they are lost. And the Bible says, in these 21 months, verse 8, their hearts, because they're hardened against God, will come to the point where they cannot change. It will be too late. No amount of reason, no amount of discipline, no amount of common sense or judgment will save them. And God will hand them over to the Antichrist. Now these unbelievers who thought that the Antichrist was so wonderful, he's a handsome man, a nice man, a polite man, a wise man. Oh, he brings everybody together. He's not arrogant. He's modest. He's humble. Oh, we'll vote for him. These people who thought the Antichrist was so wonderful in the beginning, they will be killed by his hand and sent to hell. This is the message to the world that Satan has absolutely no mercy on anyone, not even on his own followers. So verse 8, the wild animals we read about in verse 8, well, is the therion in the original Greek language, and the word doesn't necessarily mean gigantic or monstrous animals. It's not Puff the magic dragon who lived by the sea. No, it's not necessarily a dinosaur or a lion or a tiger or an elephant. It means something frightful of any size. And this could include viruses, coronaviruses, omniviruses, E. coli viruses, new viruses, in which over the last couple of years we've seen the world live in fear, the suicide rate among people of all ages, especially among the youth, has skyrocketed during the last two years. The world is already preparing for the next pandemic, and people are already living in fear. Well, we dodged a bullet on that one, but we need to get ready for the next one. We'll trust government to tell us what to do. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Each of the three preceding horsemen appeared in disguise. Remember, deception. He appeared as a peacemaker on a white horse. War. Well, he appeared as luxury on a black horse. Uh, I'm sorry. War appeared as patriotism on a red horse, and famine appeared as luxury on a black horse. And this fourth horseman that's going to come along the scene is no exception. What does it say about a culture like ours whose number one industry in the United States of America is health care? Number one industry. Those who boast in science and those who put their hope in health care will blame the believers who came to Christ during the tribulation. Remember, at this time, we are with our Lord in heaven on a seven-year honeymoon. But this, these things will be happening while we're in heaven. This is the tribulation. And they're going to blame believers who came to Christ during the tribulation for the rampant sickness and disease sweeping the globe. Many people will become believers during the tribulation, but they will be persecuted and they will be martyred for their belief. They will not be allowed to buy or sell anything, and food will be in very short supply because these believers have refused the mark of the beast. They remembered intellectually, oh yes, my friend told me these days are coming, and my friend pleaded with me, to just give my life to Christ, to make Jesus my Lord. But I just didn't want to talk about it too much. You know, we just don't talk about religion or politics because we're best friends, and we want to maintain our friendship. But these people will remember 
they will remember. And even without the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth, many will refuse the mark of the beast. We'll get into that more detailed later on. And they will commit their lives to Christ. The Bible says in verses 9 through 11 of Revelation, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Now, things on earth right now are going very badly. The bow of the horseman on the white horse is broken. Blood flows. Famine follows. Disease and sickness is rampant. So the believers who come to Christ during the tribulation are blamed and they're martyred. This isn't new. It is happening in Afghanistan right now. The Taliban are going house to house in Kabul looking for anyone who has any connection whatsoever with any Christian organization of any type. And this includes, in their minds, the United States of America. Because in their minds, the United States, not being an Islamic nation, is a Christian nation. Therefore, they are infidels. Therefore, they must be tortured in the most vile way. I cannot begin to describe in good taste tonight. The most vile way until they are finally martyred. During the Black Plague, one out of every four people in Europe died. But there was one group, one group of people who were spared during the Black Plague. They had a few deaths, but not very many. Those people were the Jews. The Jews, why? Why the Jews? Simply because they followed the biblical principles of hygiene. For those of you going next month with Robin and I to Israel, you will see how incredibly clean that nation is. The hotel rooms, incredibly clean. The kitchens, way cleaner than the kitchens in the United States. The food, extremely clean, extremely healthy. Well, except for the desserts, which I love. (laughs) But they have a standard they follow. And those standards are written in the book of Exodus. Those standards that God knew way back then. Even such things as properly disposing of human waste. That God told them way back then in great detail. If you want, you could read it through. (laughs) So because they followed these biblical principles of hygiene, the Jews were were blamed for the plague, and so they were persecuted and slaughtered. And the same will be true during the tribulation. Amid sickness and blood, economic troubles and war, believers are going to be martyred. And this is where the Lord intervenes. Each judgment we will see as we go through the book of Revelation is going to get worse than the one before. But but because of God's magnificent love, because of his great mercy, his passion, he's going to do everything in his power to get people to turn to Christ. But, but remember, God will never, ever force his will upon anyone. He has given everyone a free choice. He knows how horrible it's going to be, and he's going to do everything possible to get unbelievers to refuse the mark of the beast and to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ But many, many, many will still resist God, even after they see these things happening. So God says, all right, I have 16 more judgments yet to go. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. The Bible says, I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth. 
and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up, rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. The islands hold a dear place in our hearts, at least for Robin and I, because that's where we're from, Polynesia, the islands in the middle of the Pacific, specifically Maui. And now the mountain, right behind the fireplace that you see, holds a dear place in our heart, because this is our new home that we love so much. And Mount Sopris is not going to be there much longer. And Maui is not going to be there much longer. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. A cataclysmic shaking of the earth is going to take place. Now, some say that this is a result of nuclear war in which the sun would be darkened and the earth's tectonic plates, there would be enough to cause them to, to shift. But, but that could be true. But maybe there's a simpler explanation. Maybe God himself will get involved when he sees his children being attacked. And maybe he's giving us just a hint of what's to come. The last five years in the Midwest of the United States, more earthquakes have taken place than in the, than in the preceding 200 years in the Midwest. And if you follow the news, scientists this year are watching not so much California, they are watching the Midwest for some earthquakes that are expected to take place in the near future. The Bible says great destruction will come upon the earth. It's not a question of if, but when. This is not some science fiction movie. These things are really going to happen. Mount Sopris, right in front of you, is going to be shaken to its foundation and collapse. And the world is closer to that day than ever before. The Bible says God will turn the sun black and turn the moon to blood red. And the Bible says meteors will bombard the earth. Interesting, more meteors have come closer to the earth in the last seven years than in the preceding 700 years. Now you say, all right, David, it's just because we have bigger telescopes, and we have the Hubble telescope and all that. Well, that's true, that's true. We see more. Be that as it may, the frequency is exponentially increasing of meteors, large and small, coming closer and closer to planet Earth. When the sun is darkened, it will become extremely cold on planet Earth. Every mountain, every island will be shaken out of place. Um, Robin and I have done a lot of missionary work over the years, over the last 15 years or so in Nepal. We've been there numerous times. One mission we were on in the Annapurna region of Nepal, way up high in the Himalayas, about 14,000 feet elevation. We spent a night and a day ministering in a village. We left, we came back after visiting other villages to the United States, and less than a week after we returned home, the nation of Nepal was hit by a major earthquake. You may remember this in 2015. And that village that Robin and I had stayed in, along with our missions team, every single person was killed except for two families. Every single person. The mountains gave way and just buried that village, completely buried them. There's no hope of survival. And they, their remains lay there even to this day. The Bible says in, verse, in Isaiah 42.5, God, the Lord, created the heavens and stretched them out. The Bible says the, in, in Isaiah 34.4, the heavens above will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. Hey, didn't we just read about a rolled up scroll? Skeptics laughed at this for years until, until now. Recent findings verify 
that the universe is expanding. Most of you know that. It's not new news. The universe is expanding. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But what's even more fascinating is that quantum physics bears this out and the findings of the Hubble spacecraft, which is an incredible engineering feat, verify that not only the, is the universe expanding, but the universe is actually shaped like a scroll. Those are not my words. That's not some preacher's words. Those are scientists working with the Hubble's telescope trying to explain this complex thing in layman's language that we all can understand. The universe is shaped like a scroll. The Bible says in Revelation 6 verse 15, then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Verse 17, so those who have refused to call upon the rock of ages will now cry to the rocks of the earth. Hmm. So, who is able to survive? Verse 17. We will. Believers will. Because God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to salvation. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us, that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. And so ends Revelation chapter 6. Shall we continue? Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Before I go any further, the four corners of the earth, it's just an idiom. It's not somebody saying, ah, oh, see, the Bible proves that the earth is flat. No, 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 no. The Marine Corps, not too long ago, ask Sergeant Randy, he knows about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, not long ago, said, we're looking for a few good men because we're stationed at the four corners of the earth. No, it's just a figure of speech. So the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even any on any tree. Verse 2, and I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to, these four angel, to, the, to those four angels who had been give, given power to harm land and sea, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until... We have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Verse 4. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. From Judah, 12,000. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, 12,000. From Asher, 12,000. From Naphtali, 12,000. From Manasseh, 12,000. From Simeon, 12,000. From Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. From Zebulun, 12,000. From Joseph, 12,000. From Benjamin, 12,000. Verse 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they sang, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you're the one who knows. 
Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, as we mentioned in verse 1, the four corners just represent the entire earth. And the four winds represent the judgment of God. How do I know? The Bible tells me so in Jeremiah 49, verse 36, 51, verse 1 and 16. The seals have been opened and suddenly in heaven it's eerily quiet. All the praise, all the worship, all the singing, the angels and all the people, all of us, it's silence. You could hear the proverbial pin drop. The seal of the living God, verse 2, was a concept well understood by the people of John's time. In John's time, it was common, very common, for a carpenter, he would go and choose his lumber. He wouldn't go to the lumber yard. He'd go quite a ways. Maybe they'd be trees before they were milled. Anyway, he would seal those trees with, with wax, indicating which lumber or what trees belonged to him. And before it was shipped across the Aegean Sea, it would arrive eventually at the port nearest him. And then the builder would go back to where the ship had dropped off all the lumber or the trees. And he would choose those that had his seal on those trees or on that, on that lumber. Our master carpenter, Jesus Christ, has chosen us to, the be, to be the material of his eternal temple. The Bible says what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He has chosen us. He has sealed us with his spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but seek to please him by whom you were sealed and marked, branded as God's own for the day of redemption, the final deliverance from the consequences of sin. You remember Abel in the book of Genesis? After Abel killed Cain, Abel feared for his own life, but God promised to protect him. And the Bible says in Genesis 4.15, the Lord put an identifying mark on Cain, which was a warning not to kill him. In some versions, God put a seal on Cain. There was a sign. So after these six terrible seals that we've talked about tonight, we find 144,000 good seals. 144,000 believers that are sealed. They're marked by God as his servants during the tribulation. Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. And every single one of these servants will survive the tribulation. Every single one. They will survive. They will stand with the Lord. We will see in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. So who are these 144,000 servants? Jehovah's Witnesses, well... They're one group claiming to be the 144,000 until, well, until they had to, had to change uh, their doctrine after their group grew to more than 144,000. Originally, the Mormons. The Mormons, they claimed to be the 144,000. So did the uh, Seventh-day Adventists under the writings of Ellen G. White. And so did the Worldwide Church of God. Some of you may remember Garner 10 Armstrong. Throughout history... People have attempted to take Israel out of end-time prophecy. These people argue that all of God's promises to Israel were passed on to the church because the Jews rejected Jesus. That is a lie that is not found anywhere in Scripture. And, but, but, but in more recent history, that's why many Protestant pastors well-regarded, highly thought of Protestant pastors, not only in the United States, but also in Germany, initially supported Adolf Hitler. But they were wrong. 
God is not through with his people. His promises to them are firmly rooted in the five covenants he made with them, including the Abrahamic covenant. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, the Palestinian covenant. God gave 300,000 miles of land to the Jews from the Euphrates River to the Nile River, even though at the height of their rule under under Solomon, they only possessed 30,000 square miles, Genesis 13. The Mosaic Covenant, uh, also known as the law, God promised to bless Israel if they followed his commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But of the five covenants, only the Mosaic Covenant is conditional if they promise to follow his commandments. The others are unconditional. They are guaranteed by God. Finally, the New Covenant. God promised to give Israel a new heart upon which he would write his will, Jeremiah 31. So God is not through with the Jew because his promises to them are unconditional. They cannot be forfeited. That's why in Romans 9, 10, and 11, God says, look at Israel. I haven't turned my back on them, and I'm not going to turn my back on you. So listed tribe by tribe, the 144,000 refer to the 144,000 Jews who will preach throughout the world during the tribulation that we read about in verses 5 through 8. Did you notice that Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, take the place of Joseph? Joseph is not found there in the list, verse 8. But, but if Joseph is replaced by two tribes, yet the number remains 12, a tribe must be missing. You're absolutely right. And that missing tribe is the tribe of Dan. Dan. Why? Because God specifically said that any tribe involved in idolatry will be separated from the remaining tribes of Israel. That was a promise found in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And that's exactly what happened to Dan. When they came into the promised land, the people of Dan were given coastal territory, but they didn't like coastal territory. They weren't happy. And so they migrated to an area north of Galilee. As you remember, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is in the northern part of Israel, very near to where the pagans were living. And they began living right next to the idolaters. They began to worship pagan gods. So you can read about that in Judges chapter 18. So Dan was eliminated as a tribe. Deuteronomy chapter 29. But when the Lord returns, listen gang, when the Lord returns to establish his kingdom in Israel, Dan is the first tribe given their allotment. We read about it in Ezekiel 48. I love it. This represents the incredible grace, the incredible mercy, the awesome forgiveness of our Lord. This causes the angels and elders and living creatures in heaven to burst forth and worship and give praise and glory to God in verse 11. Now, one of the elders gave John a pop quiz who said, who are they and where did they come from? And John dodged the question by answering the question with a question. Do you know anybody that answers questions with questions? <laughs> Thank you, Robin. <laughs> so he says, well, why don't you tell me? In verses 13 and 14. And that's exactly what any mature Christian is supposed to do. We shouldn't wait as believers for someone to ask about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They may ask, but it's highly unlikely. You say, well, I'll just be a friend. I don't want to offend my friend. We've been friends for all this time, and I don't want to offend them. And they're uncomfortable talking about religion and politics, so we'll talk about everything except religion and politics. Well, that's not what the Bible says. We shouldn't wait for them to ask about our personal relationship with Christ because most likely they never will. We're not to wait for them to ask. We're to be like this elder and initiate a spiritual discussion. I'm going to stop there because our time is up. But just before we stop, I want to remind you 
to pray. To pray. To pray. We must be praying during these days. And I want to thank you for praying. I received an email today. And remember that this is being watched in Afghanistan. This email came from Afghanistan. From that man, his English name is Abraham, who you have been praying for. Some of you have been very generous in helping him and his family to leave Afghanistan. Here's the email. Honorable Brother David Corson and Orchard Church. I am watching online the Orchard live sermon. Remember, this is English. Live sermon every Sunday morning and your teaching from the book of Revelation on Tuesday. I saw your online greeting to me. Tears of joy flowed from my eyes when I saw that. It strengthened my heart that I have loyal friends who will never forget me. Thank you, my dear brother, and thank you, Orchard. May God bless you and all the Orchard family. Please convey my best wishes and regards to your students, all of the Orchard family, especially Daniel Self, and his noble family. My prayers are always with you, your wife, and all the Orchard family. May God keep you, dear brother, for many and many years. Now, he addressed that to me because I'm old. And he's just hoping I live long enough to complete the mission. He goes on to say, I pray to see you soon and travel with you to Colorado. With much respect and prayers for you, your wife, and all the Orchard family, sincerely, Abraham. I received this email just hours ago. And Abraham, you are watching tonight under great risk to yourself and to your family. The Taliban, they came to your house three days ago after searching every other house in your neighborhood, tearing it apart, as you described, going from top to bottom, looking in the flower pots, finding, looking for any signs of any alliance with either the West or, even worse, any Christian affiliation. And when they came to your house, they walked up to the door, looked in, and left. Abraham, you wrote that to me, you reported that to me, and that was an answer to prayer, to your prayers and to the prayers of your friends and your church right here, the orchard in Colorado. And Abraham, we stand with you. We know the next few days, within the next 30 days, will be extremely dangerous for you and your family. We will be praying for you. We are thankful that God has answered our prayers, giving us the resources to pass on to you so that you not only have the necessary paperwork, but you have the means now to leave and go to a neighboring country. Abraham, we respect you. We thank God for your faithful witness. We thank God for your testimony for you and your family, and we are praying for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be a part, just a small part, but a part of the miracle that you are doing in Abraham's life for his wife and his children. You have kept them safe, and they have taken a stand for you. Without apology, they have taken a stand identifying Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
We pray you give them great wisdom, protection, as they embark on a dangerous journey. Father, we pray that we would have the blessing of being able to welcome them with open arms right here at the Orchard Church and give thanks to God for what you have done in their life. Father, we continue to pray for what you're doing around the world, for the Orchard Churches now that have been planted in Vanuatu, the most primitive nation in the world, for the believers that are taking a strong stand in the Ukraine, Father, we know that the day is coming when there will be people here in this country that will also be faced with that decision. We pray that we would be faithful now, before it's too late, to invite them to be with us on that seven-year honeymoon with you, to become a part of the church, and to live with you forever. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.